Morning, church. It is good to be in the house of the Lord today. Amen. Amen. Great to have you here and excited to finish up this series that we started 10 weeks ago called Invisible God, Visible Faith in the letter of Paul to the Colossians. So as Pastor Nathan said, be turning in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. We'll work from verse 7 to the end of the letter in just a moment. You know, um, making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see our troubles are all the same. You want to go, if you know it, sing it with me, where everybody knows your name. For those who have no idea what's going on, that, that is, those are the words to the theme song of the classic 80s and 90s sitcom, Cheers. And while we would categorically not agree with everything that that song says or that that show was about, that, those words of that theme song get to the heart of one of the critical facts of every part of the human life, and that is we have a deep longing for community. As those made in the image of God, we have been created for relationships. And if you think about it, most TV shows and movies that have been written, produced, and shown over the last 30, 40 years, they get to the heart of that same theme. Think about it. Friends, Seinfeld, The Office, Lost, Stranger Things, Lord of the Rings, all of them, so many more, all unpack the fact that there are many things that bring us together but one need is clear. We need friendships. We need relationships. We need community. And while there are many things that bring people together, there is only one thing that creates truly extraordinary friendships. There is only one thing in this world that creates truly extraordinary relationships. There's only one thing in this world that creates truly extraordinary communities, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, what else would bring together a runaway slave like Onesimus, Jewish Christians like Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice, and, and a wealthy woman like Nympha in the first century like the gospel? What else would bring that motley crew of people together who would make a wonderful sitcom, by the way? What, what, what would bring that group of people together like faith in Jesus Christ? The answer, nothing. Our time in Colossians as we began this series started with a look at deep and, and transcendent theological truths and how it impacts each of us individually. There were a lot of of I and me outlines in this series. But this morning, as we come to the end of this letter, to Paul's, I get by with a little help from my friends portion of his letter, we'll consider how the truths of the gospel are to impact us as a community of faith. Us as a community of faith that is centered on the gospel and what we as a church, what we, as Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario, should be striving to be and what we should be striving to do 
as a community of faith. Let's turn our attention to the text. As I mentioned before, Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Follow along with me as I read. This is God's word to us this morning. Paul writes, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that, he, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you have fulfilled the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. You know, it's, it's really easy for us as we look into God's Word, as we spend any time reading God's Word, to quickly breeze over the lists of names that we have recorded at the end of Paul's letters, for example, that we see the genealogies in the Old Testament. But we do so to our own detriment. Because in doing so, we rob ourselves of some incredible truths and the profound reminder that Christianity is about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is about Christ and his people. And these greetings here, as we spend time looking at them together this morning, these remind us that, these were, that this is not some, some abstract theological paper that Paul writes. But this is a real letter to real people and who had real stories of the very real impact that the gospel made in their very real lives. The names of these people listed here, these are not made-up characters in a fantasy story or a fairy tale. These are people who lived. These are people whose lives, like yours and mine, were changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, transformed by the truths of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus himself. And from this list, we see four things that we here today, as a community of faith centered on the gospel, must commit to. And the first thing we're called to commit to is this, encouragement. We're called to encouragement. The first people Paul mentions in this section are Tychicus and Onesimus, and from them we see the need for encouragement. We'll look at each of the characters listed here and look a little bit at their life story, what the scriptures say about them and what we can glean from them. And what we see first from this man named Tychicus is that he is mentioned five different places in the New Testament. And while not much detail is given in those five places, it's really easy for us to see that this was a man committed to the mission and a man highly valued and highly esteemed as a co-worker of the Apostle Paul. The first mention of him that we see in Scripture is found in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, where he is listed among a, a group of Gentile believers. Gentile means non-Jewish. A group of Gentile believers who were traveling with Paul to encourage the believers that were in Jerusalem. They were collecting money to be able to encourage the church and the believers there, and Tychicus was part of that group. 
He's mentioned elsewhere in Titus chapter 3 and and 2 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul sends him to go to the churches that Titus and Timothy were leading to be an interim pastor of sorts, to go and, and continue the work that Timothy and Titus were doing so that the two of them would be freed up to go and visit Paul wherever he was. I mean, this man was willing to do whatever he was called to do. He was sold out for the mission of the gospel in service to the Lord and his friend and co-worker, Paul, who calls him, we see in verse 7 and 8, or we see in verse 7, he calls him a beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant, an incredible com- condom, uh, con- commendation. He's, he's a deeply loved fellow believer, Paul says. He is a committed servant. He is, a, he is a fellow slave, that word or that, that phrase at the end, fellow servant, literally means. He's committed wholeheartedly, like Paul, to the gospel. He is not his own, but he is a slave of Christ's. Now, Tychicus was the one, scholars agree, was the one who actually carried this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Colossae to Colossae. It's very likely that he also carried the letter of Ephesians and the letter from Paul to Philemon as well as he went. Uh, But he was more than just a letter carrier. He was also sent, verse 7, to tell the Colossian believers about all of Paul's activities for this purpose, that they may know how Paul is and that Tychicus may encourage their hearts. And notice Paul's heart. Notice Paul's pastoral heart in not just sending an impersonal letter to this church, but sending a person. Well, yeah, he sent two people. We'll get to the second person in a second. But, but he sends a person to go and tell this church about what's going on and to encourage them. You see, when it comes to encouragement, nothing can replace the physical presence of people in our lives. In his book, Analog Church, Jay Kim writes this, in the digital age, one of the most upside down things the church can offer is the invitation to be analog, to come out of hiding from behind our digital walls, to bridge our technological divides and to be human with one another in the truest sense, gathering together to be changed and transformed in real time, in real space, in real ways. I mean, this is the reason why we say around here, watching services online throughout the week is good. Watching the live stream live while the service is going on is better. But being here, in the room, in person, with the people of God, in worship together, sitting under the authority of God's word together, in fellowship with one another, praying for one another, that, that is best. Because nothing can beat the physical presence of the people of God gathered together to be encouraged in the Lord. Which is why Paul sends a trustworthy messenger with this letter to be the the boots on the ground representative to encourage them, to to, to pastorally admonish them to, to live by and live out the things that Paul calls them to in this letter. And Paul's hope is that as this church at Colossae hears of how he's doing, hears of the work that is going on for Paul and those who are with him, that they would gain confidence and strength and courage to continue with the mission themselves. It's a wonderful and profound mystery, but the fact of the matter is, is that this church at Colossae, that Paul himself had never visited personally, 
They are caught up with him in the mission, in the ministry, by the work of the Holy Spirit, which unites us together. They care deeply for Paul, and hearing about how he's doing and what he was doing would be of deep encouragement for them. And so we, as we live out our lives together with one another, we should be actively and physically present with one another to hear what's going on in each other's lives, to encourage each other in and through whatever we face, to promote confidence in the Lord and the truths that we know in his word, to encourage strength to endure the difficulties and the hardships based on what we know to be true about who we are from God and his word, to encourage courage to live for him and to stand for the truth of the gospel with one another. That's what we're called to do. That was Paul's heart for this church. That was Tychicus's job and so it should be our heart and our pursuit as well. Along with the letters in his own presence, Tychicus brought someone else with him, verse 9, and with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. This Onesimus, Paul references here, he's the reason why Paul wrote a letter to Philemon. We know Philemon lived in Colossae, and uh, specifically Philemon says in, in Paul's letter to Philemon, it mentions the fact that this church likely met at Philemon's house. Onesimus was Philemon's slave. And Philemon taught, the letter that Paul wrote unpacks for us the likely reality that Onesimus stole something from Philemon, his master, and ran away to Rome, a a crime punishable by death in this day and age. But providentially and wonderfully, as Onesimus fled from his master for whatever reason, out of the two million or so people that lived in the Roman Empire at this time, the Lord leads him directly to Paul. Onesimus finds Paul in Rome, and Paul preaches the gospel to him, and Onesimus gets saved. And now, Paul sends him back to the city he came from, to his master, to the church that met in his master's house, with Paul's call to Philemon, we read in Philemon verse 17, receive him, receive Onesimus, as you would receive me, Paul says. And he calls that church to do the same. In all likelihood, this this church, the believers that were meeting at this church in Philemon's house, they knew what was going on. They might have been suspicious of Onesimus as he came back. But Paul sends a a commendation of him to the Colossians saying that he is our faithful and beloved brother who also, along with Tychicus, will tell you everything that has taken place, which would have included his own personal conversion story. And is there nothing more encouraging than hearing the truth of the gospel come to bear in other people's lives? Isn't it a wonderful cause to rejoice in your own life when you hear of someone who who your fellow believers have been praying for and longing for come to faith in Jesus Christ? Is it not so encouraging? No doubt, Onesimus is coming back, changed and transformed, would have been incredibly encouraging for this church. to watch the truths of the work of Christ on our behalf come to bear and transform the lives of those around us is an incredible encouragement in our mutual pursuit of Him. 
It's something that we should be committing to encouraging in one another and the church that the gospel would grow us more and more into the image of Christ. Listen, we need encouragement. We need gospel encouragement. I have no doubt in my mind there are many of you here burdened by the struggles and challenges of your life who would be so blessed by a word of encouragement from a brother or sister. This must be something that we commit to together. To the mutual building up of one another from one degree of glory to another into the image of Christ by encouraging each other to follow in the truths of the gospel. It's as simple as three words in reality. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. Affirm, acknowledge, appreciate. They're not in any particular order. But encouragement may be as simple as you acknowledging the presence of somebody near you. You don't know how encouraging it would be as you came into the church on a Sunday morning and sat down, instead of just sitting in your own little silo, looking down at your phone and doing your own thing, if you welcomed the people around you and acknowledged their presence. Hey, it's so good to see you this morning. So glad you're here. I haven't met you before. My name's Jordan. You'd say your name, not Jordan, obviously. That... <laughs> Encouragement can be as simple as acknowledging or acknowledging when somebody is, is pursuing Christ and you see that wonderful thing going on in their lives and, and that's where you can affirm as well. You can affirm them in what they're doing as they are pursuing Jesus, as they are using their gifts for God's glory. You can encourage by affirming them as they stand strong in the faith. Amen. You can appreciate the wonderful blessing that it is to have one another. If you want some more on uh, this topic, there's a wonderful article written by Marshall Seagal in uh, desiringgod.com. We've linked that article in the sermon notes at hbc.info. I'd encourage you to read it. Encouragement's critical. Encouragement is so necessary for us in the difficult and challenging world that we are living in. We should be encouraging one another. We should be encouraging one another through the truths of Scripture, holding them as our ultimate authority. We should be sharing our stories of God at work to encourage faithfulness in one another as, like Onesimus, like Tychicus, like Paul, each of us have received from God that which we, should, we could never deserve on our own. Which brings us to the second area that we must commit to as a community of faith centered on the gospel, and that is grace. We must commit to grace. And we talk, when we talk of grace around here, we've, we've used this definition. You may have heard it before. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And, and we see this. We see grace all over the stories of the next three men that Paul mentions who send their own greeting to this church. Look down at verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among, who, among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. These were Jewish Christians, men of the circumcision, Paul calls them, indicating their Jewish heritage, who have been a great comfort to Paul in his imprisonment, he says. In the difficulty that he finds himself in, these men have been a gracious gift from God to him. We'll look at each of the three of them. First, we see Aristarchus. 
Aristarchus was, was Paul's fellow prisoner, he said. The Greek phrase there literally translates fellow prisoner of war. And Aristarchus had been through it with Paul. I mean, this guy had been in, in tough with the apostle Paul. It's, it's mentioned for us in, in Acts chapter 19, verse 29, as Paul was ministering in Ephesus, a, a riot rose up. This is what it says. So the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. Aristarchus was there with Paul when things hit the fan in Ephesus. He was with Paul in the shipwreck detailed in Acts chapter 27. I mean, this guy went through it with him. And what a gracious gift it is to have godly friends who are there with you standing side by side in the craziness of life. Those people who you know are with you, who got your back when things go sideways. That was Aristarchus. He was a man committed to being there no matter what, willing to risk his own well-being for the sake of the mission. He's an unsung hero who God used to make an extraordinary impact for the gospel, a gracious gift from God to Paul and to the church and to us today, an example of graciousness and faithfulness. Next, we see Paul mention Mark, who's the cousin of Barnabas. Now, if you know anything about the story of, of Paul and his companions, you'll know that Paul and Mark had a bit of a rocky relationship. Mark uh, started out with Paul initially, went with him uh, in the pursuit of, of the sharing of the gospel, traveled with his companions, but at some point in time when they decided they were going to go back through a different region, Mark bailed. He quit. Lots of, lots of speculation as to why he quit, uh, but he, he took off. Now Barnabas, he wanted to still take Mark with him. It's his cousin, right? He loves him. Come on, man. Like, let's take, let's take Mark with us. But Paul wasn't having any of it. Acts 15, 39 uh, leads to this. Uh, there arose a sharp disagreement uh, so that they, that's Paul and Barnabas, separated from each other. Uh, Paul, Paul didn't hang with quitters, right? He was a man of resolve. He was going to keep going. And so Barnabas and Mark had one way. Paul and Silas had another way. But now, years later, They've reconciled. Scriptures don't de detail how, but Paul and Mark have, have fixed what was broken, so much so that Paul goes out of his way to ensure that past disagreements don't lead to a less than positive response to Mark if he makes his way to, Coloss uh, to Colossae. He says, Paul says, if he, Mark, comes to you, welcome him. And it's remarkable, remarkable here. We can't miss the fact that Paul mentions that Mark has been a comfort to him, even though the relationship was so strained. You see, that's grace in action. Paul could have been totally done with Mark. Are you kidding? That guy, that guy betrayed me. He bailed. He quit. I'm done could have wanted nothing to do with Mark ever again. Could have hardened his heart toward him. You see, grace thinks the best of one another and grace hopes for reconciliation. If you're here today and, and you have, if you have strained relationships, I want you to, to be encouraged with the fact that they're not out of the ordinary. 
The Apostle Paul had a strained relationship. But also, I want to encourage you that you would pray to remain in a state of grace toward that other person, to think the best of them, and to hold out hope for reconciliation. Because Mark's story is so encouraging to us. It's so encouraging to us on on the strained relationship side, but it's so encouraging to us if you feel today like you've failed. If you feel like you blew it. Because God's grace moved to not be done with Mark. God in His grace reconciled Mark. He used the disagreement that happened between him and Paul, no doubt, to bring truth to bear in Mark's life and and rehabilitated him into ministry, so much so that Mark wrote one of the Gospels. That's a pretty good result, don't you think? So as those who have been shown much grace by God, we show much grace to others. And we lean on God's grace in that for us, and we pour out that grace toward others. Finally, uh, in this section, Paul mentions Jesus, who is called Justice. And we don't know much about this guy. We don't really know anything more about him other than the fact that he obviously didn't want to go by his Jewish name of Jesus for obvious reasons. Uh, He too, though, was a Jewish believer of great comfort to Paul. Barnabas Piper in his book, Belong, unpacks the heart of this idea of our need to commit to grace for one another. He writes this, God's plan for his church is offering hurting, tired, worn out, needy sinners like you and me a place to belong, a place to identify, a place to encounter the profound, transformative, healing, restoring grace of Jesus Christ. That's the heart of this church. That's the heart of the church. That's the heart of this community of faith because the gospel of grace breaks down any barriers that we on our sinful selves or that this sinful world might try to raise up. Grace breaks down the barrier of our own selfish desire for comfort and stability. We, like Aristarchus, should graciously set that aside for the good of the gospel and the good of one another. Being willing to go outside of our comfort zones to serve for the good of the gospel and one another. After all, Jesus did. He left the comfort of his heavenly home to come down to this earth to take on human flesh, to die in our place, a death he most certainly did not deserve that we may be forgiven, reconciled, freed from sin and death, and welcomed into the family of God. The gospel of grace breaks down the barriers that we may put up like strained relationships. We, like Paul and Mark, should graciously seek for and hold out hope for reconciliation as Jesus Christ graciously brought reconciliation to us, reconciling us with the Father by his shed blood and broken body. The gospel of grace breaks down barriers like race and socioeconomic status. And we should, like these Jewish Christians, partners with Paul in the work of the kingdom, graciously move toward anyone and everyone for the sake of the gospel as Jesus Christ graciously moved toward us while we were still his enemies. 
As a community of faith, we must commit to grace for the good of one another, giving each other what we may not deserve as we have been given what we certainly did not and do not deserve. More grace needed. Hard stop. Thirdly, we as a community of faith commit to diligence. Commit to diligence. In verse 12, Paul passes on greetings to this church from Epaphras. He says, uh, who is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. Now, Epaphras was the church planter. We know that Paul was preaching in the region. Epaphras was, was saved and transformed by the gospel, went to Colossae, preached it there, established this church. He, like any good pastor, like any good shepherd, any good overseer, any good elder, is committed to working in intense prayer for the good of his people. Specifically, that they will know all the will of God. They will know all the will of God for their lives. They will know who God is and what he's doing in this world, and they will order their lives appropriately so as to grow into well-rounded believers, mature in their faith. Remember, we've, we've talked about it over and over in this series, that the Colossian church was facing pressure from false teachers who, who were trying to take them away from the truth of the, the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ to save. But what Epaphras was doing, what he did in, in preaching the truth of the gospel, Jesus Christ alone saves by grace through faith. What Epaphras did in, in, in establishing this church, what, what he, he was doing in, in working hard in prayer for them, what Paul did in preaching the gospel, in writing this letter, what they were doing was working hard for the sake of the spiritual growth of this church. We need people to diligently work and pray for us, and we need to diligently work and pray for others. We don't live and work in isolation. We live this Christian life together. And therefore, we need to be diligent in our work with and for one another with the same goal that Paul and Epaphras had for the spiritual maturity of one another. We're not self sufficient. We've been given each other and we need each other's diligence in the pursuit of Christ. We need to, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I need you. I need you. There we go. I need you to diligently work for the gospel of Jesus Christ in your own life, and to diligently pray that those realities would come in your life and in my life, just like you need me to diligently work for the gospel to come to bear in my own life and in this church, and to pray that that would be the reality. And we need to do so, by the way, all the more with more intensity, with more diligence, because every single day we live is one day closer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. I'm going to quote uh, uh, Barnabas Piper's book, Belong, again here because it's so spot on. You should probably read it, by the way. He writes, this then is how you belong. Follow in Jesus' footsteps with the help of the Holy Spirit by laying down your life for the benefit of your church and giving yourself joyfully and wholeheartedly to loving Jesus and his people. That's the call. 
we sacrificially, lovingly, joyfully, wholeheartedly lay down our lives in every part for the people that Jesus has saved already and for the people that he will save through us. We surrender our desires. We set aside our comforts and wants. We give up this ridiculous notion that church is something that I consume once a week instead of something that I commit to and live out and live in every single day. There's some awesome things that are on the horizon for us as a church. I'm not sure if you know, this is the last Sunday of summer, I'm sad to say. Next Sunday is our ministry launch Sunday. Ministries are getting started back up again. We're going after things together as a church. The Lord has put in front of us incredible opportunities to plant churches this year. The Lord has put incredible opportunities for each of us in our neighborhoods. I hope you prayed what Pastor Todd called you to pray. I hope you saw opportunities to share the gospel this week. God has put opportunities in front of each of us in our neighborhoods, in our city, in our county, in our province, in our country. The mission and vision of this church is to make more and better disciples of Jesus Christ. Are you on board with that? Would you be willing to pray that the Lord would capture your heart with that vision? And then would you be willing to get to work? By and large, it's not true this church. The Lord has been gracious to us and good to us. But it's often said in church leadership circles that 20% of the people who attend a church do 80% of the work. Like I said, that's just not true here. We're so grateful for each of you and for the way that you serve. It's wonderful. But how diligently are you serving? How diligently are you working? How diligently are you praying? Are you working in your prayer for the sake of the gospel advancement that we will do from this place? You will do in your neighborhoods, with your neighbors, with your friends and family. Will you catch the vision that God has given to each of us, that Jesus clearly laid out? What did he say to the disciples? Go, therefore, and what? Make disciples. Christian, that's your call. Whatever gifting you have, whatever area of service it is, it's about making disciples. I mean, Epaphras caught that vision, that, that for, got the vision for what God was doing in the advancing and growing of his kingdom, so much so that his work didn't even stop in Colossae. Look at verse uh, 13 again. For I bear him witness, Paul says, I can confirm that he has worked hard for you, Colossians, and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis, the neighboring towns. The surrounding cities were on Epaphras' mind and his heart to reach the people there with the gospel. It would have been the comfortable thing for him to just lay down roots in Colossae, to get the ministry started, to start the programming, to have a good budget, to be able to give himself a solid salary. But what does he do? No, he goes out. We're not meant to stay in here. We're meant to go out with the gospel. This is why we serve. This is why we're a church committing to planting churches. This is why we're teaching kids the truth of God's word down the hall. 
This is why we teach them the same on Wednesday nights here in Awana. It's why we disciple students at Harvest Youth every Tuesday. It's why our young adults are gathering this afternoon to have a meal together, to encourage one another in the truth of the gospel, to work out their lives, the salvation that God has given to them. It's why we gather in small groups. It's why we gather in hope groups. It's the ministry of biblical soul care. It's the ministry of welcome and integration. Everything that we do here is to make more and better disciples of Jesus. Are you in? Because in the darkness and difficulty of this world, people need the beauty of a gospel-centered life. People need the value of gospel-centered relationships. People need the wonder and uniqueness of a gospel-centered calling and a gospel-centered church. And so we, as Paul says, Earlier in this letter, chapter 3, verse 23, whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. Luke was another example of that, verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, Paul says. I mean, he went everywhere with Paul. He was working alongside him. He was recording and writing as a historian to do all that he did to record all he did in his gospel and in the Acts of the Apostles, Luke was sold out for the mission, for sure. And then we come, uh, verse, at the end of verse 14, to Demas. He is recorded as a warning for us. He is recorded as a warning of what happens when we are not diligent in our pursuit of Christ and when we get complacent and aren't careful. Because here in Colossians, Demas is recorded as still being with Paul and in a good light, sending his greetings to this church, but in what's widely considered to be Paul's final letter, 2 Timothy, specifically chapter 4, verse 10, we read these crushing words. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. At some point in time, the love that Demas had for the world overcame his love for Jesus and resulted in his deserting Paul and the mission. We need to watch our loves. Because what we love, we will serve diligently. If you love Jesus, you'll serve him diligently. If you love the world, you'll serve it diligently. Be careful who or what you love. Do you love the community of faith? Do you love the church that Jesus came to give his life for? Serve diligently. Finally, as a community of faith centered on the gospel, we must commit to perseverance. And Paul changes gears in verse 15 to give his own greetings to various people as he wraps up this letter, and we'll move through these rather quickly. He gives greetings first to the brothers at Laodicea, verse 15, that the Greek word for brothers there could mean brothers or sisters. He's giving greetings to the believers in this place called Laodicea, a neighboring town, like we mentioned already, where the gospel was spreading to, and Paul wants to say hi to them. Secondly, he gives his greetings to Nympha and the church at her house. Nympha was one of the many women that Paul mentions in his letters who, who played a critical part and had a valuable and important role in the establishment of the early church. There were, of course, no buildings for churches back then. Uh, the gathered people of God relied heavily on the hospitality of, of those people in the church, and Nympha graciously provided her home. She was likely a woman of wealth, 
uh, who used uh, her spiritual gifts for the good of the church. And an important question for us to ask in light of that and in light of her story, are you using your gifts? And are you persevering in that? As you consider that question, I'd, I'd encourage you to uh, record this passage and to go through it sometime this week as you spend time in prayer before the Lord on that. Romans chapter 12, verses 6 to 8. Romans 12, 6 to 8. Uh, spend time meditating on that if you're seeking out what spiritual gifts you might have and how you may use them. Uh, next, he says this, verse 16, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter uh, from Laodicea. One of the indications of the, the circulatory nature of the letters that were written back then, they often traveled from town to town. Uh, they would be written, or they'd be read, they'd be written, carried, and read in the original destination, but then also go to other places as well and shared amongst themselves. And Paul, of course, commends that here, not just the reading of his letter to the Colossians, but to the letter from Laodicea as well. And then we get to verse 17. And verse 17 really is the point of this final point, where we see Paul say this And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Could you imagine being Archibus for a second? And just, just being there, gathered together with the church. Maybe they're all sitting down in a circle, the letters being read. And, you know, he heard the wonderful truths of chapters 1 and 2 and the awesome reality of who Jesus is and how that impacts us. It's so wonderful. He's, he's hearing Paul commend all these people and give his greetings. It's so lovely and wonderful. And then... He hears his name, and he perks up. Oh, what's Paul going to say to me? Paul's like, hey, bro, get to work. Archippus, fulfill your ministry. Do what you've been entrusted to do. In all likelihood, he probably had some sort of leadership role, and he'd been called to serve in that capacity. Paul's calling him here. Faithfully fulfill it, Archippus. Bring it to completion. Persevere to the end, brother. Because that's what faithful saints do. That's what the community of faith does. We persevere in the ministry that we've been called to no matter what. And after all, that's what Paul was doing. He wasn't calling Archippus to something that he was not doing himself. Verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Just note on that. It's historically understood that Paul often dictated the letters to somebody who would record them, and then he would write this last bit with his own hand. That's what he says right here. There were letters going around that claimed to be from Paul, but weren't. This was, this was validity, that this was truly Paul. This was truly a letter that he had written. And then he says this, remember my chains. That's not a plea for pity. That's Paul calling them to Courage. His chains were a physical reminder of the spiritual reality that he was confined to Christ. I mean, Paul earlier, chapter 4, verse 3, had asked them, had asked the Colossians to pray for a chance to spread the gospel while he was in prison. And that's the reason he was imprisoned in the first place. I mean, in the weakness of Paul's flesh, he probably could have been like, mm, maybe I'll pump the brakes on this whole gospel thing for a bit. After all, I'm in prison. And would we blame him? Probably not. That's not what he does. I'm in prison for the gospel. Pray that I have more chances to fulfill the mission that I'm called to. He was fulfilling the mission he'd been given. 
persevering in it until the end. And so should we. What has God equipped you with? What has God gifted you to do? What ministry has he called you to serve in? Today, we hear the words of Paul to Archippus, and we are reminded that this is a call for us as well. Fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry. Do the work that God's calling you to do. Persevere in it. Don't stop. No matter what happens, fulfill the ministry God has called you to. Because that's what the community of faith does. We commit to persevering in what we're called to until the end. Paul finishes off this letter the way he finishes off all his letters by saying this, grace be with you. Why does he, why does he say that? Because grace is enough. Grace is enough because Jesus is enough. Each of us, followers of Christ, sons and daughters of the Lord, have been poured out with grace upon grace by Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners. And in that, we are bound together in community through Him. We're part of the family of God together. He is the motivation and means by which we can come together as the community of faith that he desires and longs for us to be. He has the grace to help you and I persevere because as he says to his disciples before he himself would go to the cross, John chapter 16, he tells them, I'm going. He tells them, in this world you will have trouble. But then he tells them this, John 16, take heart. Why? For I have overcome the world. That's our Lord and Savior. That's the foundation for the church. That's the foundation for this church. That's the foundation for this community of faith. And so we persevere. Early church father Augustine once wrote, God became a man for this purpose. Since you, a human being, could not reach God, but you can reach other humans, you might now reach God through a man. God became a man so that in following a man, something you are able to do, you might reach God, which was formerly impossible to you. From Jesus to Paul, from Paul to Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Mark, Justice, Luke, Nympha, the brothers and sisters of the church at Laodicea, the church at Colossae, and from them through the living and active word of God, to us here today at Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie. God has given us a community of faith, one another, who are meant to help and encourage and enable and challenge and guide each other to be centered on the gospel for the rest of our lives as we prepare to enjoy our eternal relationship with Jesus Christ face to face forever. So would we commit to these things, to encouragement, to grace, to diligence, to, ver to perseverance, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the gospel, in the power of the gospel of Christ?
And may the Lord make it so for his glory. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are deeply in awe of the wonderful truths of your word. We thank you for the scriptures, that you inspired these words, you have carried them for thousands of years, that we may hold them in our hands and know that what we read is true because what we read comes from you. We thank you for the letter Paul wrote to the Colossian believers and for the practical application it has for us today, for the incredible realities of who Jesus is and how his gospel transforms us. We thank you for the incredible reality of the, of the partnership and the wonderful chance we have to be engaged in, in building the kingdom of God because we have been brought from death to life by that same gospel. But we can't do this on our own, Jesus. We need your, your work, Holy Spirit, to unite us together in this pursuit to take the truths of the gospel and to consume the core of who we are so much that we, in everything that we do, live out the truth of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the throne of the Father where he rules and reigns now and his coming again when he will bring us home. So we pray that you would help us. We pray that you would work to build us into people who love and encourage one another. This world is hard. Walking with you, Jesus, you said, wasn't going to be easy. We have what we need in you. We have what we need in the truth of your word. We have what we need in one another who you give us intentionally to encourage each other as we pursue you. Develop that here, we pray. We pray that you would help us to be people who live with grace for one another, not harsh but in grace, seek to encourage and admonish to live in the truth of who you are and what you call us to. I pray that you would help us to be people diligent who get to work in every part of who we are for the gospel to be advanced in the lives of those around us and that we would do it all the more as we see the day quickly approaching. And in that, Father, we pray that you would help us to persevere. We don't have what it takes to make it to the end, but we know that you do. Your word tells us those who make it to the end will be saved. So help us humbly, Father, we ask. Make this church a place that's committed to these things, that we may glorify you, that we may lift your name high until we see you face to face. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.